You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willie. What's up, everybody? It's your host here, Chili Willie, a.k.a. the Banana Backpack. So if, if you're listening to this right now, I just want to take a moment, say thank you. I know I don't usually do so many episodes on one artist, but I've been wanting to switch things up a bit. So you are officially either a true Miles Davis superfan or a music legend superfan. Either way, I hope you know that I appreciate the heck out of you. Now, for anyone who hasn't listened to the first two episodes on Miles Davis, you're going to want to pull over if you're in the car, or pull your phone back out of your pocket, or wherever you keep your phone, and go listen to those first. Oh, okay, hey, you're still there. Well then, get ready for another wild ride as we continue to piece together the puzzle of one of music's greatest and coolest sonic explorers. Alright, now... I'm about to jump into DeLorean, speed that baby all the way up to 88 miles per hour. Because we're going back to the year 1956. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. Alright, we made it. So Miles. Miles is laying unconscious in a stark white bed in a stark white room with a few doctors and nurses wearing, well, you guessed it, stark white medical scrubs. Miles' face was covered. In fact, his whole body was covered. The only part of him that was exposed was his neck. And, I mean, it was really exposed. A few months earlier, he'd found a lump in his neck. He was chugging full speed ahead with a brand new take on life. He hardly took note of what was going on with his body, as he was just beginning to readjust to the 100 mile an hour lifestyle of a working musician. But something started to feel weird in his throat, something that he couldn't just brush off. So he made an appointment to get himself checked. And when that appointment finally came around, the doctor just rolled his chair across the room, took his glasses off, and looked Miles dead in the eye when he spoke the following words. It's a routine operation, Mr. Davis. Thankfully, in your case, the polyps are non-cancerous. The doctor spoke with the same tone and confidence as his father, who also happened to be a doctor. He didn't think twice. He trusted him. And now, two weeks after that appointment, Miles is just waking up from that routine operation the doctor spoke of. He was in a different room than when he was when they put him to sleep. This room was huge. Maybe to some folks, the room would give off an illusion of privacy, but not to Miles. Even in his post-surgery grogginess, he thought it was a pretty lame attempt. Its beige curtains turned the massive room into small sections. 
The sounds of the sick and the pain that lurked through the curtains also lurked through Miles' mind. Suddenly, a meager young nurse pulled open the curtains with one gentle stroke. How are you feeling, Mr. Davis? Are you ready for your medicine? Stark reminders of Miles' drug-ridden past echoed through his mind. Medicine. He wasn't about to take any of that damn medicine. Sure as shit not after he just came out of a heroin hell. Just as he opened his mouth to speak his mind, he found himself at a loss for words as a sharp pain stabbed at his neck. Miles recoiled back in his bed in agony and frustration. He realized he couldn't speak. The nurse was quick on her feet, but truth be told, she couldn't think of much else to do in that moment besides give him his medicine. She grabbed the pills and a glass of water. Mr. Davis, let's try and get some of this medicine in you. You'll feel- Mid-sentence, Miles smacked it right out of her hand. Now Miles and the nurse were at a loss for words. She turned around and stampered off into the curtain wall. After a few minutes of listening to the ever-present sounds of the hospital, Miles noticed the curtains move just a little bit. And then the doctor walked in to see Miles glaring at him with a stormy look. A look that the doctor completely disregarded with his own unique look. A smile. How are you feeling, Mr. Davis? Miles shook his head while the doctor looked down at that broken glass and spilled water. He knew Miles didn't want the medicine, and he wasn't going to make him take it. Then he looked back at Miles. There was a pause of silence and understanding. The doctor sat down, took off his glasses once again, and began his post-surgery speech. <clears throat> well, Mr. Davis, we've successfully removed the polyps from your larynx. However, there is about a 14-day restorative process for your vocal cords to heal properly. Within that time, there should be absolutely no talking, whispering, or throat clearing. So, that being said, we'll have you up and out of here in just a few more days. Is that alright with you, Mr. Davis? Miles nodded his head, already becoming impatient with this new handicap. He was done with all the medical mumbo-jumbo. He had bigger fish to fry. He needed to go find himself a band. All right, good, said the doctor, interrupting Miles' ever moving mind. Now, we'd like to keep you here to rest for the next few days to ensure you heal properly, Mr. Davis. Unfortunately, my workday is just about over. However, my nurse Dorothy here will be taking care of anything you need tonight. Miles gave one more nod to the doctor as he gave one trusting nod back and swiftly left the room. Miles was again left with the sounds of the hospital. But as the time grew longer, his own thoughts began to drown out the sounds around him and move faster through his mind, getting louder at every second. It'd been two days already since Miles walked into those hospital doors for his operation, and he had absolutely no perception of time. There was no window to tell what time of day it was. Only a slight difference in the brightness of the blinding fluorescent lights, and a faint snoring of the patient just beyond the wall of curtains. Miles, too, had been drifting off the past couple hours. He would drift in and out of consciousness 
just to awaken by a smiling nurse to check his blood pressure and heart rate. It felt like a never-ending cycle. Each time he drifted to sleep, certain thoughts followed him in and out of the dream state. He was thinking about how he could make the music he wanted to make. Who would be the best musicians for each specific sound of each specific instrument that he wanted in his band. He'd been playing shows with Charlie Parker's band as his main source of income after recovering from his drug addiction. But of course, Miles was on to bigger and better things. He was already breaking into his own. He just had to find the right way to tell Charlie Parker that he was out. Miles knew that Charlie wouldn't be too happy about this and no matter how he told him. Charlie was glad to have Miles in his band despite his shady past few years. But he also knew that Miles was getting more and more popular by the minute, and at the same time, he was outgrowing the band. Miles tried not to dwell on thoughts like this. He knew whatever would happen would work out for the best. Sure enough, a few hours later, it was about to work itself out right before his very eyes. With one hand peering through the curtain, and the other hand resting in his pocket, Charlie Parker walked in with an eerily confident swagger that you wouldn't typically see inside a hospital. He came to visit Miles, but Charlie Parker was notoriously mischievous, and of course Miles was notorious for being a hothead. Charlie Parker had something up his sleeve. The ever-present sounds of the hospital started to drown out in the loud, ferocious arguing originating from Miles' room. It was getting loud now, loud enough to send shockwaves right through the curtains and pierce the ears of a sleeping patient, loud enough to furrow the brow of a nurse who politely excused herself from the patient she was attending and started walking towards the bickering, trying to pinpoint the noises with her ears. Most of the noise, well, it wasn't coming from Miles either. Don't get me wrong, they were at each other's throats for a minute, and Miles, well, he was used to being the loudest in the room, but this time, his usual booming authoritative yelling voice had been reduced to a dry whisper, and this upset Miles even more. Any way he tried to open his mouth and escalate the argument, his whisper would be trampled over by Charlie. Miles and Charlie were seemingly oblivious to the ruckus they were causing. Miles was too angry to care about anything, and Charlie, well, he might just have known exactly what he was doing after all. In fact, Miles himself has claimed that Charlie Parker only came to the hospital to get under his skin. The nurse finally pinpointed the ruckus and pulled back the curtains. She was no longer wearing a smile. On the other hand, Charlie still had that eerie swagger. I'm sorry, sir, but you can't be here. Mr. Davis needs time to rest. Charlie spun around. Well, I was just leaving anyway. This time, Charlie was wearing a smile. And a big one, too. What exactly Charlie Parker said to Miles to get under his skin that day may not ever truly be known. However, what we do know is that Miles' vocal cords were never quite the same. So what do you think? Did Charlie Parker really just come to visit Miles and things got a little out of hand? Or 
Did he have nefarious plan all along? Well, his smile at that moment, it looked as if to say his mission, whatever it was, was accomplished. After that day, Miles' voice was reduced to that dry whisper that would follow him around for the rest of his life. But to the rest of the world, that dry whisper would help build more of a mysterious persona for Miles. Again, he didn't dwell too much on this. He had much bigger fish to fry. He still needed a band for his new record deal. But the only way to find the perfect band is to play with a lot of different musicians. It's kind of like dating. You may go on hundreds of dates before you find that one right person. The person that you just click with. Imagine doing just that five times over. That was the journey Miles Davis was on. He was back to touring non-stop. And this time, picking up young and new musicians anywhere and everywhere he could. He would typically recruit musicians who were completely unknown. But he also had his eyes peeled for musicians who had a specific style. Every single musician he chose had a unique style. And pretty much every single musician he chose, no one would ever expect him to choose. He was the kind of guy who hired fast and fired fast. That was his ideology. And for good reason, too. Most of these unknown musicians were unknown because, well, they weren't that good. For better or worse, Miles had to roll with the punches. And instead of directing the music, this is when he decided to let the music direct him. So he kept playing and finally ended up with a solid few who more than made the cut. They made history. Miles' luck continued to skyrocket with a newfound and truly carefree attitude as he was invited to the second annual Newport Jazz Festival and again caught the ear of a producer named George Vakian, who said he would sign Miles if he could put together a steady working band to showcase his music. And for Miles, this was the offer he'd been waiting for. But there was one problem. He still had one year left on his contract with Prestige, the record label he signed on to right after he cleaned up from drugs. And in that contract with Prestige, somewhere in the tiny black print, it also stated that he had to make no less than four albums with the label before he could terminate. But there was no way he was leaving Newport without signing with Columbia. So he did it. He signed the contract with Columbia that included a $4,000 advance. Now that may not sound like much, but that's about $38,000 in today's money. He also agreed on a condition that his recordings for Columbia would remain unreleased until his agreement with Prestige expired. Now in order to make this work, Miles had to stick it out with a steady group of musicians. A group so steady that he could actually earn the right to call his band. Now this has proven to be no easy task of course, but for Miles the hard part wasn't finding the musicians, it was keeping them. Miles was so obsessed with trying out new styles and musical approaches that his current band was the complete opposite of what a band should be. It was a different player every single day. He'd been through hundreds of musicians at this point. And when he was forced to find a solid band for Columbia, well, it should have been a stressful decision. But Miles made it look easier than breathing. He called up four of the musicians that he enjoyed working with the most, 
And there you go. They were banned. Ironically, the less Miles started caring about the decisions he made, the more legendary the outcomes became. And when Miles put together that band, it would help create one of the greatest and most influential jazz groups of the 50s, and pretty much all time. He recruited pianist Red Garland, bassist Paul Chambers and drummer Philly Joe Jones, along with saxophonist Sonny Rollins. When Rollins left in September 1955, John Coltrane came in as a replacement, and the new crew took to the studio. The studios of prestige, that is, as Miles still faced the issue of getting out of his contract. But when they arrived in the studio, it seemed as if Miles had no plans at all. He was completely unorganized. He had no sketches or pre-written songs. He gave little to no direction to his band members, and yet had all the time in the world. But this was exactly the point Miles was trying to make. Miles instructed his band to just be themselves, play whatever their ears desired, whatever comes natural to them. Just practice, he told the band as he made a hand signal to the engineer to start recording. The engineer pressed record, but still looked confused. Wait, 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 what is this song called? said the engineer. I'll play it and tell you what it is later. Miles' legendary response ended up becoming part of the song. The band was on a roll. They kept recording and kept recording. If he could record enough material to fit into four records, he'd be free from his contract with Prestige. So for the next three days straight and over 10 hours of recorded jams, that's exactly what he and his new band did. Finally, things were coming full circle. As they all played together, his bandmates were sonically complimenting each other. Each song was like a deep, meaningful conversation, taking twists and turns down unexpected avenues. There was no wrong note, only experimentation. Miles and his band were on a roll, and it was a perfect timing, as he was about to begin a brand new chapter in his journey. At just 30 years old, Miles was ready, or at least he thought he was ready for, a different way of life. He was already burnt out on tour. At this point, he was more interested in the offers he got to be a director of a record label or a teacher at Harvard, rather than any offers to go out on the road and play the same old songs. But he'd just signed with Columbia, and what seemed like the best offer he'd ever gotten, just a little while ago, became the same old, same old. But producer George Avakian had other ideas. He liked the idea of seeing Miles go in a completely new direction, but he still needed the music. So he made some of his own suggestions to Miles. Maybe work with a bigger ensemble, or try out movie scoring. Miles' life was unfolding down several different avenues. Not only musically, but romantically. He'd started dating a dancer named Frances Taylor, who he planned to marry. She was hired as a dancer for one of Miles' shows, and that's when his drummer introduced the two. However, she wasn't very into Miles at the time. She was more focused on her craft as a dancer. So they cut off their relationship. Then, a few years later, after they break up, they just happened to bump into each other 
walking down the street in New York. And it just so happened that Francis needed a place to stay. And Miles didn't really spend too much time at his apartment anyway. So he gave her the spare keys and told her she could stay as long as she'd like. One day, as the legend goes, Francis got bored, so she sat down and listened to some of Miles' music. She had heard Miles' music before, of course, but never truly listened. And when she did, she fell in love. Quote, I fell in love with his sound. It got to me. I played it over and over. And that was my introduction to his music. Unquote. When Francis discovered Miles' music, he'd been out of town because he was getting ready to score his first film. Film scoring had piqued Miles' curiosity, so George Vakian introduced him to a composer named Gil Evans. Evans was interested in collaboration, and as it turned out, was just the person Miles needed to assist with his new musical direction. As they started working together, they became good friends, but friendship was only part of it. They each had their own individual followings, and both fan bases were very different from one another as well. Miles, with a large following in the black community, and Gil with a background in conducting symphonies. They both felt an obligation to create something special and new, not only for their own fans, but for each other's fans. No pressure, right? Well, not really. Miles was persistent on only creating music if he had the inspiration. With love in the air, Miles was full of inspiration. Francis had not only been listening to a whole lot of Miles' music, but Spanish flamenco. She introduced Miles to flamenco, and his experience was similar to Francis when she heard Miles Davis for the first time. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. It was otherworldly, and he couldn't get enough of it. He couldn't just sit and listen, though. He couldn't help himself. Musical ideas came flowing out of his brain like a rushing waterfall in a jungle of melody. He brought these ideas to his new friend Gil Evans. Gil helped translate these ideas into something much bigger. With a full orchestra, Gil Evans and Miles took ideas of flamenco and made them into a more cinematic experience. It was called Sketches of Spain. It's an album of many talents and many faces. Just to follow along with the Spanish theme for a minute, I like to think of this album as a great matador. Alright, now stick with me. Different matadors have different strategies. Some matadors would run around the ring, making the audience gasp with every step. Other matadors might just stand there, holding their cape in front of the bowl. But a great matador can do all of the above. Sketches of Spain was a hit. Even 10 years later, it continued to inspire. A young songwriter by the name of Grace Slick, who was the lead singer of Jefferson Airplane, decided to sit down, take a ton of acid, and listen to it over and over. She said Sketches of Spain was drilled into her head, and all of a sudden, ideas came flowing out of her in various ways, and she ended up putting all those ideas together, creating one of the greatest 60s songs of all time, White Rabbit. Gil and Miles continued their collaborative journey, making two more albums together. The first of which was called Miles Ahead and featured an album cover that Miles wasn't too happy about. See, back then, it was fairly typical for a record company to create an album cover for their artists. And Miles 
hadn't had a problem with it until now. The cover in question featured a white woman on a boat, looking snazzy, living the high life. Miles knew exactly why they used that specific cover. It was to sell his music to a richer and whiter audience. So when he saw his producer, he said, what's that white bitch doing on my cover? And with that, the cover was changed pretty much immediately, but you can still find physical copies with the original cover floating around here and there. After a few years making albums with Gil Evans and touring with his first great quintet, it was clear his band was only continuing to evolve. Miles had fired his saxophonist, John Coltrane, because he had a heroin habit. Then he rehired him after he kicked his addiction and experienced a personal and creative rebirth. John Coltrane said this about the experience, quote, I know that there are forces, forces that bring suffering to others and misery to the world. I want to be the opposite force. I want to be the force which is truly for good." End quote. Miles' bassist Paul Chambers was also still on board. However, after Miles had been inspired by the sonic layers he'd created with an entire orchestra, he wanted to add another voice to his own band. So he added an alto saxophonist, Julian Cannonball Adderley. This gave the band's sound much richer voicings and more bluesy undertones. Coltrane's exploratory sheets of sound balanced Miles' spare, melodic approach perfectly. Shoot, Cannonball Adderley was the icing on the yin-yang-shaped cake. Miles had already done a lot of experimentation with the trumpet, but he was nowhere near the end of his journey through the depths and the styles and sounds of the trumpet. He was filled with ideas to express. He had ideas that sat in his bedroom for years, but that's all right because ideas are ideas. And when you got several great minds to think them through, you get something truly legendary. Miles' vision for his next album wasn't fully developed, but he knew he wanted his band to fully explore themselves musically. So when he went in to record it, he pulled a trick he learned a few years back from all those final recordings with Prestige. Quote, I didn't write out any kind of music for Kind of Blue. Instead, I brought in sketches because I wanted a lot of spontaneity in the playing. I knew if I got some great musicians, They'd deal with the situation, and they'd play beyond what's there, and above what they think they can." Unquote. He asked his band, who at this time were an elite group of musicians, to just think deeper about the kind of sounds they can create, and they did just that. Kind of Blue is a completely inventive work of music, as creative as some of your wildest dreams all put together. The sounds were familiar, yet brand new. Kind of Blue signified a different way of thinking about jazz altogether. Today, Kind of Blue remains Miles' most universally known work, and the highest sold jazz album of all time. It's one of those albums that the more you listen to it, the more you find. And I believe that's one of the most defining factors of a masterpiece. 
Miles and Columbia Records were a match made in heaven. Miles could go in any musical direction he felt like, and Columbia had the power to bring it to a mainstream audience, all while making Miles a whole lot of money. As Miles himself said, quote, What's wrong with getting paid for what you do and getting paid well? Unquote. As Miles was beginning to notice the impact his music had on the black community, he wanted to look as slick as he could. Dressed to impress, right? Well, not really. Miles wasn't trying to impress anyone. He was trying to show that black can be and is beautiful. Through money, slick clothes, fast cars, and beautiful women, he became the personification of cool. And through that, Miles became a kind of Superman, especially to the black community. Now, if you haven't seen Superman, spoiler alert, even he's not invincible. There's this thing called the kryptonite, and Miles too had his kryptonite. Well, his kryptonites, plural. But his weaknesses were, to a degree, also his strengths. Because sometimes, demons are the basis of art. Miles could go from ice cold, calm and collected, to all out lava in a matter of seconds. but. He also never let anyone in. He was a master of evading and eradicating adversity. He could get rid of just about any trouble that came in his way, whether that meant punching it in the face, insulting it, or smooth-talking it. But Miles was about to have a run-in with trouble too powerful to tame. And this kind of trouble is unfortunately still a big problem, even in today's modern world. Police brutality is the kind of trouble I'm talking about. And on the next episode, We'll explore the legend of how Miles Davis found himself face to face with one of the hundreds of dirty cops in New York City. That, and much, much more. So I hope to see you there on the next episode of Music Legends. Okay, that's it. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Music Legends was written and produced by me, Willie Miller, with help from my dear friend, the wonderful, the quick-witted Kelsey Fow. I appreciate you. So folks, this is where it gets good, or bad, depending on how you look at it. It's really a turning point in Miles' life. This episode, and especially the next episode, so stay tuned, there's a lot more to come, and I can't wait to share it with you. Alright, so I want to give a quick shout out to Aunt Sharla and the Doug for teaching me about Wizard Rock, Mardi Gras, and Jambalaya Crawfish Pie. Sounds absolutely delicious. I'm glad I sat next to you on the plane, and I'm definitely coming out there for Voodoo Days next year. Also, looking forward to doing an episode on Wizard Rock in the future. Sounds like a super interesting subgenre of Harry Potter. Anyway, if you know of a certain musician whose legend should be told, send me an email. It's musiclegendspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the new season, or just say hi. Let me know what's new and exciting in your life. 
Anyway, maybe email is too old school for you. Or too new school. I don't know. But I have social media as well. And the links are in the show notes. As always... I also put some articles and references in the show notes for those of you who want to go a little bit deeper. Just to give you an idea of some of the links I put, there's a full interview with Francis, Miles' wife. And let's see, what else? Oh, I put a link to a Radiolab episode. Uh, It's a podcast, and it has absolutely nothing to do with Miles Davis. But it goes into the 1958 Newport Jazz Fest in a beautiful way. And it's honestly... One of my favorite episodes that I've heard in a while. So, that reminds me, how would y'all feel about having a page on a Music Legends website dedicated to my favorite podcasts? I listen to a, a ton of podcasts every year, and I'd love to share them with you. I don't know, just a thought. Let me know. Okay, last, but definitely not least, if you're enjoying Music Legends, please rate and review it. Okay, you're the best. I love you. Again, thank you so much for listening. Happy 2022. I'll see you in two weeks. Peace.